Hi there, food eaters. This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. Welcome to the 19th episode. The aim of this podcast is to reveal what's in processed foods and beverages. With every episode, you'll get a mini lesson in food science and food history. In today's show, wine is on the table. I'm going to address such subjects as why labels on wine bottles don't list ingredients, why some wines don't have to list the alcohol content, why all wines must have a warning label, what are the types of hidden ingredients and some examples of each, and why some people may need to be concerned about which wines they drink. The subject matter of this program is a departure from the usual investigation where I deconstruct a food ingredients list on some package. At the end of the show, we'll get a brief look at a new product hitting the grocery store shelves. For those new to the podcast, here's some of my history. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for many years, I've had a fascination, some people have called it an obsession, with the processed foods we eat, what constitutes those foods, and what they could be doing to our health. This is the only podcast that I'm aware of that is devoted to looking behind the processed food curtain at all those strange, unusual, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods and beverages that are stocked on grocery store shelves. And as a reminder, this is a 100% guaranteed free podcast. It won't cost you a penny, and I will never beg for money. There are no sponsors or financial supporters. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and I refuse to help promote any business, commercial product, or organization. All I ask of you is to lend me your ears ears, for a short time to inform, to educate, and hopefully to entertain. Every so often, I'll read a book about food ingredients to educate myself and to see if it would be a good resource for this podcast. Recently, I picked up a book called, quote, E for Additives, end quote, by Maurice Hansen. That's a strange title, uh, which I'll explain in a moment. The book is 20 years old, but still has some useful information in it. The author is English, So his take on food additives is based on the British system of food labeling, which at that time followed the rules of the European European Union. The book is organized by what are called E-number categories, which are types of food additives. So, for example, the first few sections are entitled colors, preservatives, antioxidants, emulsifiers, etc., In each section are listed additives in order of the E-number. In Europe, every food additive is given a code number. For example, the preservative BHA, which we all lovingly know as butylated hydroxyanisole, is assigned the code number E320. A food manufacturer has the choice of listing the actual name of the ingredient or providing the e-code. That system, of course, has benefits and detriments. On the downside, just seeing a number on the label is not very helpful to the consumer. 
the additive is disguised, just like when you see an acronym like EDTA. On the upside, if the consumer is curious enough and knows where to find it, the ingredient can be looked up in an index and a significant amount of information can be learned about it. While looking at a food label, a consumer can get out their phone and look up an e-code in an app, such as the free app from Germany called Food Additives Complete Description. So getting back to the book, I'm reading the first few chapters, which provide some general information about food ingredients. When I get to a chapter entitled, quote, why are there still secret ingredients, end quote. Well, that perked my ears up because I've wanted for some time to create some podcasts about hidden ingredients in foods. The first things mentioned in this chapter were alcoholic drinks. Mr. Hansen pointed out that in Europe in 1987, any alcoholic beverage exceeding 1.2% alcohol by volume did not require an ingredients label meaning that anybody who might be sensitive to particular food additives would not know those chemicals were in the wine. Dang, I had never thought about that before. Was, was that true for the USA in 2017? Sure was. Uh, the next time I went to the grocery store, I began looking at labels on wines, beers, and spirits. There was plenty of information on those labels but nothing about ingredients. If I went over to the juice, tea, or soda sections of the store, all of those products had ingredients labels. Why were alcoholic beverages exempted from the labeling rules? That's an excellent question, food eaters, and I'll explore that answer here soon. So that brings me to the subject of this podcast. There are components in our food Let's call them hidden ingredients that most of us will never know about, but which could affect our health, violate our personal food preferences, or simply just horrify us. This is true across the whole food system. I'm talking about additives, adulterants, processing aids, packaging chemicals, biocides, pollutants, etc., This is such a big subject that there's no way that one one podcast could address it all. So every once in a while, I'm going to address a single food or beverage group. Originally for for today's podcast, I was going to talk about both wine and beer. But those are both big topics. So for today, I'm just going to look at wine. I'm really not much of a wine fan. I certainly can tell the difference between a red and white wine. I'm not colorblind, of course, but beyond that, if I sipped a Pinot Noir, Merlot, or Cabernet Sauvignon blindfolded, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But I am a little familiar with winemaking. In the late 1970s, and that's dating myself, I had a neighbor with a healthy crop of Concord grapes. One day, she gave me a bunch of them, and I decided to make Concord wine. After a trip to the library to research the subject and purchasing some basic equipment, I crushed those grapes, fermented the juice, treated it, filtered it, and bottled the wine. After an appropriate aging period transpired, I tried the stuff. It tasted incredibly awful, but it packed a punch like moonshine, 
topping the charts at around 15% alcohol. Eventually, most of it went down the kitchen sink. So, where to start on this subject? Let's just talk about what basic ingredients are needed to make grape wine at home. First of all, you need some grapes. Or, if you don't want to mash the grapes and filter the grape pulp, then grape juice will save you time and effort. Then the juice needs sweetened using some kind of sugar to make what's called a must. Note, legitimate wineries don't add extra sugar. Then, to ferment the must, some wine yeast must be added to the sweetened juice. To get a good result, you'll need some chemical additives. If the grape juice is not pasteurized, a sulfiding agent like potassium metabisulfite will be needed to sanitize or kill off undesirable bacteria. To help the yeast grow and stay healthy, you will need to add some nutrients, such as diammonium phosphate, also known as DAP, sulfates, amino acids, vitamins, etc. There are premixes that can be purchased uh, for that purpose. After fermentation, to kill off the yeast and prevent mold growth, potassium sorbate may be added. Well, that's it. Pretty basic. But note that at a minimum, there's already a handful of chemical additives that will wind up in the wine. But I'm describing home winemaking here. What happens at the industrial level can be way more complex because wineries have to be very careful to produce a consistent, high-quality wine every time or they'll lose a lot of money. So, you have this wonderful bottle of Merlot that you're about to drink. The label looks nice with an inviting picture of a winery on it. It has the company name, the vintage date, where the grapes were grown, and the word Merlot identifying the type of wine. Also, you see where the wine was bottled, the alcohol content, and the volume in the bottle. Somewhere on the label, you'll see a government warning regarding pregnant women driving under the influence and potential health problems. Then there is a declaration of sulfites or sulfur dioxide for wines sold across state lines. Remember, potassium metabisulfite seems that some people don't react well to those sulfiting chemicals. They have been implicated as a cause of asthma-type symptoms that could range from simple wheezing to life-threatening reactions. In rare cases, sulfites can cause anaphylactic shock in people who are allergic to them. Notice the next time you purchase a bottle of wine that there's probably no ingredient list anywhere on the label. Not even grapes are mentioned. Why is that? Of course, we have to go back and look at some history. After Prohibition ended in the early 1930s and alcoholic beverages could legally be manufactured again, the government passed what is known as the Federal Alcohol Administration Act of 1935 which still exists today. Instead of handing over the regulation and labeling of alcoholic beverages to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, the act assigned that responsibility to the Treasury Department, namely the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, or TTB for short. 
since the government wanted to put a syntax on alcoholic beverages. That meant the rules for labeling wine, beer, beer, and distilled spirits were different than those required by the FDA. However, the law states that wines with less than 7% alcohol by volume, known as ABV, alcohol by volume, would fall under the FDA labeling guidelines. They would need to display a nutrition label and a list of ingredients, like other kinds of foods and beverages you find in the store, but wouldn't have to disclose the alcohol content. Now, as regards the safety of a wine beverage, the FDA still has jurisdiction in that area. If a wine manufacturer adulterates a beverage or uses a potentially harmful additive, the FDA can investigate and issue a warning against the company. Now that we know why the labels on most wines don't have to list ingredients, let's get to the meat of the subject. What are the ingredients in wine? Well, I've already talked about some of them as regards the basic recipe for homemade wine. Let's review. There's fruit, like grapes, yeast, a sulfiding agent, nutrients, and potassium sorbate. That's a handful of ingredients, but the wine industry actually has lots and lots of additives and processing aids legally available for its use. Let's get to it. There is a very comprehensive website for winemaking with the link called winemaking.jackkeller.net, which lists pretty much everything you need to know about making wine. At that site, there's a web page entitled Winemaking Additives and Cleansers, which lists alphabetically about 136 chemicals and materials. Although very thorough, that page is one of the most difficult to read that I've ever seen on the web. Uh, with a bit of irony, the author states at the top of the list, this is a quote, if you think chemicals are bad, go somewhere else, end quote. Obviously, I don't have time to talk about 136 possible hidden chemicals or additives in wine, plus different wines will require the use of various subsets of chemicals. So I will selectively choose some of the more interesting chemicals or mixes to talk about to give you some sense of the possibilities. If you want to go deeper into the subject, check out the links in the show notes at the website for the podcast uh, located at podbean.com. Most wine additives will fit into one of the following six categories. Antiseptics and antioxidants, fermentation nutrients, fining and clarification, flavor and taste control, stabilization, and finally, additives to correct problems in the winemaking process. There are so many possible additives for making wine, I'll just try to write one or two examples for each category. For the antiseptics and antioxidants, there are the sulfiding agents mentioned earlier, and absorbic acid as an example of an antioxidant. Here's a little more about sulfiding agents. The warning on wine labels was first required in 1987 in the United States, with Europe following suit in 2005. 
If the finished wine exceeds a sulfur content of 10 parts per million, there has to be a declaration on the label. If you go into stores that sell wine, you will see the, the vast majority of them have this warning label on them. Now, ascorbic acid or vitamin C is a very common antioxidant and has been talked about many times in this podcast. It scavenges for oxygen in food and beverages. Since wine fermentation is an anaerobic process, that is, does not require oxygen, it's important that the concentration of oxygen be kept really low to get the right flavor profile in the wine and to keep it from turning into vinegar. For wine to ferment properly, the yeast organisms have to multiply and stay healthy. For this purpose, fermentation nutrients are added. The most common one is diammonium phosphate, uh, known as DAP, along with the sugar for, from the grapes. This is like food for the yeast. It is considered a safe additive. Other nutrients include chemicals like pectolytic enzymes, also called pectinases, which can break down pectin, a jelly-like glue found in fruit like grapes. If pectin is not removed, it can form a haze in the wine that is very difficult to remove at later stages. The enzymes also help in increasing the amount of juice that gets extracted from the fruit during the mashing of it. We use similar enzymes in our own digestion, so pectinases are generally considered safe. The next category is the one called fining and clarification. This is a big one. Not too many people would be happy drinking a cloudy wine. So various additives are used to help clarify them. The word fining refers to the process whereby a substance is added that binds with undesirable components in the wine, like leftover yeast, to drop them out of the solution. Examples of unwanted components are tannins, phenols, and proteins. Believe it or not, in the old days, dried blood powder was used for that purpose. Ugh. Often animal products are used for fining, such as egg whites, casein, known as milk protein, gelatin from cow skins and bones, isinglass, and chitosan, which comes from the shells of crustaceans. Sometimes minerals are used, such as the clay bentonite. Most of the fining agents are safe since they ultimately get filtered out of the wind and wind up as a waste product. Clarifying agents include enzymes like proteinases, which remove undesirable proteins from the wine mixture. That's the sound for the ingredient of the day, or for this episode, the hidden ingredient of the day. With this feature, I go into a little more detail about that ingredient. Just a minute ago, I mentioned that isinglass is used as a fining or clarifying agent. What is isinglass? It was the wily Ro <laughs> it was the wily Romans who first observed that wine stored in animal stomachs or fish swim bladders was much less opaque than wine stored in other ways. Isinglass is an odorless gelatin-like material obtained from the dried swim bladders of cod, 
drumfish, and thread fins. The swim bladder, located in the dorsal part of the fish, allows the fish to control its depth without having to expend energy by swimming. The isinglass is removed from the fish and dried naturally. If dried too quickly, a lot of the clarification potential can be lost. Once dried, the isinglass is clean, sterilized, and cut in acid. The cutting process results in a white liquid or emulsion of isinglass, which is ready to add to wine or beer. Isinglass has other uses, such as glue, preserving eggs, that was used that way in World War II, and to repair paintings on parchment. There are various materials used for odor and taste control. We certainly want the wine to taste just right, given that we may be paying anywhere from $5 to hundreds of dollars a bottle. Everyone has probably heard of oak barrels imparting a particular taste profile to the wine stored in them. Nowadays, more commonly, oak chips are used to quicken the aging process. Then there are nasty odors, which may need to be removed. Silicates are used to remove hydrogen sulfide, a compound that smells like rotten eggs, which can form under anaerobic conditions. Then there is activated carbon, often found in water filters, which is used to remove both odor and color. Some activated carbon, called bone char, is produced from the burning of animal bones. The next category is stabilization. As you've probably gathered by now, wine is a complex chemical mixture which can be unstable over time, particularly if it gets exposed to extremes of temperature and humidity. Therefore, there are additives to help stabilize the wine. Potassium sorbate was mentioned earlier. When added to wine, it essentially kills off the yeast to prevent further fermentation and other undesirable chemical changes. Then there are, of course, enzymes like lysozyme, which kill off lactic acid bacteria. Another chemical used as an alternative to potassium sorbate to inhibit yeast in some wines is dimethyl dicarbonate, also called DMDC. It's a colorless liquid with a sharp odor. The FDA considers the chemical safe, plus it ultimately breaks down into harmless byproducts. The last and final category includes additives to correct problems. This is a biggie. That's why I saved it for last. Being still mostly a natural process, wine fermentation doesn't always go as planned. Things go wrong. So rather than having to waste a huge vat of wine must, winemakers have some tricks up their sleeves to set things straight. A good website to check out that summarizes many of the corrective measures is called Wine Folly. Since wines can change color over time and also develop bitter tastes, additives can be added to prevent those changes. One stabilizing chemical is a water-soluble polymer called polyvinyl polypyrrolidone, or PVPP. Ah, what a wonderful chemical name. That's just gorgeous. Now, PVPP can reduce bitterness in most wines as well as brown colors that develop in white wines. 
the FDA considers this chemical safe. This stuff is found in many products, including hot melt adhesives, dialysis membranes, tooth whitening gels, and even in inkjet papers. Sometimes grapes don't have enough inherent sugar to provide a good fermentation. So winemakers need to add extra sugar to assure that they can hit their alcohol target. This can be done by adding sugar directly to the must in a process called chaptalization, or a grape must concentrate can be used. Wines need to be acidic in order to stabilize the odor and taste properties. Grapes naturally have a substance called tartaric acid, but if a wine turns out not to be acidic enough, winemakers can add chemicals called acidulants. Examples of acidulants are lactic acid and malic acid. Both of these occur naturally, but probably the synthetic versions are what are used in the wine industry. Those chemicals are not a safety concern. Now, of course, the opposite can happen when a wine becomes too acidic. If that process goes to completion, then the wine could go sour. To control acidity, alkaline substances can be added, such as potassium bicarbonate and calcium carbonate, both of which are health-friendly substances. Now, what if a red winemaker produces a wine that doesn't have the right intensity of color? Say it's more rosy than red. Then the winemaker can add a grape juice concentrate, such as one called Mega Purple, to boost the color, taste, and mouthfeel. Now, some people say that's cheating, that an additive like Mega Purple is an adulterant and doesn't belong in the wine. According to some reports, Mega Purple is used by the majority of wineries for their low-end red wines, under $20 per bottle. So, if you want to avoid that concern, you're going to have to spend more money than the average Joe. But think about this for a moment. If a lot of wineries are bolstering their wines with grape juice concentrate, then what is to distinguish one cheap red wine from another? Not much. That's it for the subject of wine additives. Are there other hidden substances in wine? Yes, there are essentially three other possibilities. Agrochemicals, processing chemicals, and adulterants. Let's start with agrochemicals. That takes us back to grapes. How were the grapes treated in the vineyards? What herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides were used to keep the arborists healthy? Of course, this is not just an issue for wine, but really for any food or beverage that we consume. Unless some government agency or private lab analyzes wine and publishes the results, there's no way we're going to know what winds up in the wine. These are truly hidden substances, some of which can be deadly if they bioaccumulate in our bodies. This is a very complicated and difficult subject to talk about. The wine industry uses dozens and dozens of chemicals on their crops. So the breadth and complexity of this topic goes way beyond the range of this podcast. But I will tell you about one website that at least addresses the pesticide usage. It's called, quote, whatsonmyfood.org, unquote. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. 
This website cites information obtained from the USDA Pesticide Data Program, which found 56 types of pesticides on grapes. Of these 56 compounds, 8 are known or probable carcinogens, 17 are suspected hormone disruptors, think learning disabilities and the feminization of males, 10 are neurotoxins, and 5 are reproductive toxins. Which of these toxic chemicals wind up in a specific wine and at what concentration is really unknown because there are no systematic studies to provide this data? We're on our own. Our only recourse if we're concerned about toxic biocides in our beverages or foods is to buy organic. There are organic wineries that grow organic grapes, but as you might suspect, they are few and far between. The next time you find yourself in a wine store or winery, ask which wines are organic, and then you can find out for yourself. There are even wines that are labeled USDA organic, which means that all the ingredients used in the winemaking process were organically sourced. The next subject is processing chemicals. There are various chemicals used to clean, sanitize, and help operate the equipment in the winemaking process. Looking at the Jack Keller website, of the 136 materials listed as wine additives and cleaners, I counted 12 of them, or 9%, uh, as cleaners or sanitizers. Some of them are as follows. There's quat, Q-A-T, sodium percarbonate, sodium carbonate, iodine, and sodium metasilicate. Whether any chemical residues of those cleaning agents make contact with a wine and get incorporated into it is a question that would be tough to answer. To my knowledge, no government agency monitors food or beverage products for those types of contaminants. The last possibility for hidden chemicals in wine is the presence of adulterants. Adulteration of food means the substitution of the genuine food material wholly in part with any cheaper or inferior substance or the removal of any of its constituents wholly in, or in part which adversely affects the nature substance or quality of the food that's some kind of definition uh, adulteration of foods and beverages has occurred throughout human history putting it simply people will cheat people get greedy particularly if money is involved. Some of the most frequently adulterated foods and beverages are olive oil, milk, honey, saffron, orange juice, coffee, apple juice, and grape wine. One of the worst cases of adulterated wine was, uh, has been called the Austrian wine scandal of 1984. And that year, the adulterant diethylene glycol was found in as many as 82 different brands of wine, both in Germany and in Britain. Diethylene glycol is toxic to humans and animals. It is a common ingredient in antifreeze, which is found in the radiators of motor vehicles. You may have heard of dogs uh, licking up puddles of antifreeze in people's garages or driveways and then dying. That compound tastes sweet but it's deadly. 
Some of the Austrian winemakers were adding diethylene glycol to their wine to improve the flavor and the body so that cheaper wines could be sold as superior brands. As little as 0.3 milliliters of diethylene glycol consumed in one day could be a health hazard. And then, you know, if you had 100 milliliters, that could be fatal. One bottle in England was found to contain one and a half milliliters. The scandal was discovered when a tax inspector noticed that more antifreeze than usual was being sold during the summer months. It took the Austrian wine industry over a decade to recover from that scandal, and the Austrian government wound up passing much stricter wine laws. One last thing about unexpected ingredients. Sometimes undesirable natural ingredients can show up in wine. In the 2015 study, 65 wines from New York, California, Washington, and Oregon were found to contain arsenic at levels that exceeded the EPA limit in drinking water, which is 10 parts per billion. Some of the wines were almost 150% over the limit with an average of 24 parts per billion. In another study of California wines, it was found that the cheaper the wine, the more arsenic was in it. Apparently, the source of the arsenic were rocks in the region where the grapes were grown. The rocks got eroded by rain, and the arsenic leached out into the soil to be eventually taken up by the grapevines. I've mentioned a bunch of things about wine in this podcast, so to do some fact-checking, I visited a local wine shop. I asked the shop manager if any wine bottles had nutrition labels and ingredient lists. He was surprised by the question, but he was able to locate one brand, uh, it's called Moscato d'Arcy, which did list the ingredients. I was shocked, but I guess some winemakers decide to provide that information voluntarily. I then asked the proprietor about the 7% alcohol rule. He didn't know what I was talking about, but he did find a bottle that did not show the alcohol content on the label. So presumably that was a low alcohol wine. I also asked about organic wines. He did have several in stock, but they were definitely a rare item in the store. One bottle uh, made by Prelius was uh, made from organic grapes, which meant that other ingredients in the wine were not necessarily organic. Another bottle, Fry California Red, had the USDA organic emblem on the label, which meant that all the ingredients were organic. He pointed out that some wineries make organic wines but don't label them that way, which didn't make much sense to me. He also showed me a wine, uh, it was Our Daily Bread, that was labeled as vegan, which of course meant that no animal-based ingredients or materials, like L egg albumin or fish bladder, were used in the making of the wine. Lastly, he found a wine that mentioned no added sulfites on the label that would be safe for people with allergies or sensitivities. That's it for the hidden ingredients in wine. So what are the take-home messages here? First of all, 
Wine is not simply fermented grape juice, and the ingredients are not simply grapes, water, and yeast. There are a whole host of chemicals involved in the modern production of wine, so we should be aware of the complexities involved. If we have concerns about what we drink, be they medical, health, or ethical, then choosing the right wines is important. If you have a sulfite allergy or sensitivity, select wines with no synthetic sulfites added. If you're worried about biocides in your wine, seek out an organic wine. If you are ethically alarmed by the use of animal products and the processing of wine, then search for a vegan wine. Here are a few websites that will help you find wines to meet your needs. These will also be listed in the show notes. For organic wines, the website is organicwinefind.com. Organicwinefind.com. For vegan wines, it's barnivore.com. Barnivore.com. That sound means that it's time to check out something new on the grocery store shelves. This product is from a company called Dave's Killer Bread. They make different kinds of breads and bagels. A relative newcomer to their product line is Epic Everything Organic Bagels. If you're into bagels, you might want to give these a try. They appear to be a cut above the usual supermarket bagel. Here are the 21 ingredients. Uh, Organic weight. Organic wheat, composed of organic wheat flour, organic whole wheat flour, water, then the mix that goes on the bagels, organic chia seeds, organic dehydrated minced garlic, organic dehydrated chopped onion, organic whole flax seeds, organic unwhole black sesame seeds, organic unwhole brown sesame seeds, organic poppy seeds, and coarse sea salt. Then, continuing, there's organic wheat gluten, organic cane sugar, organic thick-rolled oats, organic sunflower seeds, yeast, organic vinegar, organic cultured wheat, organic expeller-pressed canola oil, salt, organic fermented rye flour, organic yellow cornmeal, and wheat enzymes. This product is organic, non-GMO, kosher, vegan, free of artificial colors and flavors, and free of preservatives. You get a 17-ounce bag of five bagels for about $5. The nutrition profile looks pretty good. Only 4.5 grams of fat per bagel with no saturated fat. No cholesterol, 320 milligrams of sodium per bagel, which is probably about average. There are 5 grams of fiber per bagel, which is decent. The sugar content is 4 grams per bagel, not bad. The protein content is a whopping 12 grams grams per bagel. The everything topping ingredients are pretty healthy as well, including chia seeds, flax seeds, poppy seeds, and sunflower seeds. So give it a try sometime. Well, it's time to end the program. I hope you've picked up a few things about wine that you didn't know before. Maybe you'll be more conscious the next time you make a wine selection, particularly if the hidden ingredients matter to you. A shout out and thanks to Jay, the wine store guy, who unflinchingly answered my pestering questions about wine. The subject of hidden ingredients is vast, so if you enjoyed this program and would like more of the same, drop me a line. Let me know. To all you food eaters out there, thanks for tuning in. 
If you could leave a review, good or bad, at the iTunes store, I would greatly appreciate it. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet wherever podcasts are found. Also, if you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this particular podcast, feel free to drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed, all one string, at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. And if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants.